Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yolki here with Jen in studio. Hey. Zach, who is in Canada, we assume eating poutine and waving to moose. Well, currently I'm just drinking coffee, but yes, all of the stereotypes. So this is our last episode of 2017. So we're going to zoom out a bit. Year one of the Trump presidency has made one thing very clear, which is that the president has a pretty strong belief about foreign policy. Let me tell you, the one that matters is me. I'm the only one that matters because when it comes to it, that's what the policy is going to be. You've seen that. You've seen it strongly. So to a rather unprecedented degree, that's true. And we're going to dive into what that means for three of the biggest stories in the world, for Iran, for North Korea and China. But before we do, let's start broad. I mean, Jen, what does that tell you about sort of the single sentence Trump view of foreign policy or as we see it, the single sentence summary of how we see Trump foreign policy? Yeah. So I think, you know, looking back, it's pretty clear that the Trump doctrine is speak loudly and carry a small stick. So I think you've seen him kind of pounding his chest and, and you know, threatening to do all these big, you know, serious things like tear up the Iran deal or, you know, really get tough on China and crack down on China and, you know, renegotiate trade deals and all this. And we haven't actually seen him follow through on most of those kind of big tough guy sounding proposals. Um, so, you know, he talks really loudly, but when it actually comes down to it, you get these like weird half measures that kind of just create confusion and chaos. And is that by design, Zach, or do you think that's just sort of the chaos comes from the way he runs his government? Oh, it's a complete accident. It's not that President Trump took office and was like, what I'm going to do is mismanage the State Department, allow my policy deputies to develop independent positions that never really reflect my centrally guided belief. It's it's that the president delegates a lot of authority despite saying I'm the only one that matters because he thinks foreign policy is about these grand pronouncements. In reality, it's about some careful management of relationships with other countries and of U.S. assets like its diplomatic corps, like the U.S. military, like economic tools, like sanctions. And the president just has no interest in how to deploy those tools of statecraft. So, so the result is he says stuff and then other people – have a lot of latitude to interpret those things, leading to chaos, confusion, and uh, collapse in certain areas of American foreign policy. So th there's one specific thing in there that's really interesting, which is that he, in a very literal sense, hasn't filled a lot of jobs. Right. The bureaucracy can seem really boring from outside, but actually it's hugely important. So we don't have ambassadors in many parts of the world. We don't have people running policy towards Asia at the Pentagon or State Department. And so the government is just empty. And then you have cabinet members like Mr. Charisma Rex Tillerson, who are either undercut or probably going to be fired fairly soon. And there's like this constant drumbeat of how this guy is getting raged up by Trump. That person's getting raged up by Trump. But the other point that I think is interesting is Trump took office and said, I am one thing. I'm a deal maker, right? Like that was his thing. These deals were made by idiots. No one else knows how to make a deal. I'm going to make a deal. But now that he's in office, he's not even really trying to make deals overseas. And I find that kind of fascinating. No, he's just cutting the U.S. out of deals that it has already made. Right? If Trump fashions himself this great deal maker, in reality, what he's done is undermine the Iran deal, withdrawn the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement, isolated the United States as a result of the Jerusalem decision. Uh, I mean, this is, these are all things that hurt U.S. negotiating leverage. They don't enhance— It's pulled out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that was literally designed to— kind of shape trade norms and policy in U.S. favor and pulled out of it, which is just baffling. And, and then what happened immediately after is, I think, just as important, which was as soon as the U.S. pulled out, the countries that had negotiated it did basically the exact same deal, except without the U.S. Right. And China is the one—TPP, the trade deal was designed to sort of counter China 
Instead, China is stronger than ever because the deal exists just without us. Yeah, I mean, you can debate the merits of the TPP as an economic agreement, and there was real sure. and I think meaningful debate over whether or not it was good for the United States or other countries in the region. And so I think Trump may have had a point there. Uh, the broader issue that absent U.S. leadership in trade architecture in East Asia, that China, given its huge economy, would end up playing an increasingly significant role in determining the, the tone of the region, that seems hard to argue against. So if he had scrapped TPP and said, let's move towards you know some other kind of trade economic agreement in East Asia, that would have been one thing. But he didn't even try. There wasn't any effort to be the dealmaker. There was the anti-dealmaker. So I want to get back to, and, and I totally agree, I want to get back to the point that you raised a little bit earlier, Yochi, about not filling these kind of lower level and even some higher level positions in the State Department and, and in the government more broadly. I think it's really important. I think outside of Washington, maybe a lot of people don't really understand what those people do all day for a living. And I think the idea of, you know, drain the swamp and bloated government, um, you know, these big bloated bureaucracies, I think that's a sexy kind of idea. It kind of is intuitive. It feels like, yeah, right? Like there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. Um, and to some degree, that's right. Like there are places where you can trim the fat in every bureaucracy, you know, writ large. But when we're talking about diplomacy and, you know, and international relations, the lower level people, you know, the the deputy assistant director of Asia policy, these kind of lower step down, not that the top cabinet people, they are literally the ones who go and meet with their counterparts all over the world and sit down and discuss like the real fine nitty gritty, you know, ways that these big, broad policy pronouncements will play out. And when you don't have those people, you essentially have all these other governments scrambling to figure out, okay, but what does this mean in practice? And they don't know who to talk to. They don't know who speaks for for the president, if anyone but the president speaks for him. Um, and, and so that's where you really get this chaos. It's it's not just like, oh, he didn't fill the government and give those people jobs. Like it actually matters in a concrete way. Right, because you need to have the interface if you're the foreign government, especially if Trump is making foreign policy on Twitter, as he often does. Right. So 140 characters, 280 characters, it's not really how you normally make policy. So if you're the government of South Korea and you hear Trump say, you need to pay more and we're kind of okay potentially if you go nuclear, and then say, wait, 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 we don't actually mean any of that, and then have H.R. McMaster, Trump's national security advisor, say, uh-uh, we're actually not going to leave you to your own devices. But then you don't know who to talk to. If you don't have an ambassador, and there is still no ambassador in South Korea, if you don't have a confirmed assistant secretary of state for East Asia, and there is no one confirmed there either, you don't have the person to even ask, let alone setting aside the kind of chaos of the policy itself. There's no one to ask questions to about where that policy goes. Right. And I think um, something happened last week that illustrated this. There was kind of some confusion over whether the U.S. would be sending its athletes to the Olympics or not. Um, and Fox News had asked a series of Trump administration officials, McMaster, um, Nikki Haley, and gotten wildly different answers. And then, you know, uh, a reporter asked um, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders. She gave another answer. And there's this whole kind of chaos. And that may not seem like a huge deal, right? It's not nuclear policy. But if you're South Korea and you're a really close ally and suddenly the United States is saying, we think it's too dangerous to even send our athletes to your Olympics. Like, that's a big deal. And the fact that, like, nobody in the administration was on the same page for several days is just really emblematic of how this can turn into broader chaos. Yeah, there's this big debate in international relations theory about the extent to which individuals matter and the extent to which 
the behavior and decisions of governments are determined by what other right. governments in the broader international system are like. Uh, and I'm inclined towards the more systemic view of this thing. I think that a lot of the time individuals don't matter nearly as much as we make them out to be, except when there aren't individuals, right? And that's what's happening here. We don't have uh, uh, we don't have a situation where there are reasonable policymakers and states functioning in the way that a bureaucracy is supposed to. You have a system that for a variety of reasons that we've just been discussing is broken. And as a result, the United States government, this massive institution that shapes and controls the world, can't function in the way that governments in that position are supposed to. And and that means all sorts of crazy things can and, and in fact have over the course of this year happened. Right. So there are the crazy things and then there are also the things where candidate Trump and President Trump are kind of different. We're going to start with Iran because you used to hear President Trump say things like this. The Iran deal, which may be the single worst deal I've ever seen drawn by anybody. So he campaigned promising to just tear it up, to get rid of the Iran deal, because he thought it was kind of awful, terrible, weighted too heavily towards Iran. But he's decertified the Iran deal, but he has actually not pulled us out of it. So, Jen, we're sort of half in and, and half out. Right. So he, you know, like we hear in that clip, it was, you know, end the Iran deal, tear up the Iran deal, renegotiate it. I mean, he delivered if... I'm not sure if it was that speech, but one speech standing in front of a podium that literally had a sign on it that said, end the deal. So you would expect, right, that he would follow through and, I don't know, end the deal. Uh, but he didn't. He just took this kind of middling step where he decertified it and essentially kicked it to Congress and said, hey, if you guys want to renegotiate and, like, you know, add some sanctions back on, which would effectively end the deal, um, you know, I'll leave it to you guys kind of saying, hey, you know, especially to the GOP, they also kind of ran on this similar platform that the Iran deal is bad and we're going to end the deal. Um, they didn't do anything yet. This deadline for them to kind of really put sanctions on quickly has passed. Nothing has happened. We're coming up on yet another deadline in January for Trump to once again have to certify or decertify. So the Iran deal is still there. It's just kind of limping along. And it's the idea of the Iran deal was also to bring Iran theoretically back into the fold by, you know, kind of normalizing trade, you know, removing sanctions, things like that. Like that was part of the bargain, right? Like they would get better access to the world economy. It's kind of the buy-in. And the Obama administration kind of went around trying to convince other countries that that's something that they should to do. Um but you don't have Trump doing that. So you just have this kind of like, eh, it's still there. We don't really care. We don't like it. We don't know what's going to happen. Well, I'd posit that this is a perfect example of the kind of crazy thing I was talking about earlier. What I mean by that is that decertification for listeners who haven't been following super closely is a matter of U.S. law. It's not anything related to the deal. It's that Congress said that the president has to certify that Iran is complying every so often. Uh, and if the president doesn't certify that, then Congress gets to vote on fast-tracking sanctions, reimposing them on Iran, which would, in fact, violate the deal. Congress chose not to do that. So this is a very bizarre state of affairs where you have the president declaring, in effect, Iran is not complying with the deal, when incidentally they are by any objective measure of what the Iran deal does. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, which does certification for this, has confirmed that Iran is complying. So the president is sort of undermining the deal, but not exiting it. And the result is you have a situation where the U.S. is ambivalent towards a really important international agreement. Uh, and it's very tricky, very difficult to figure out what the policy is or what the end result of the United States policy for a long time will be. 
You also have foreign governments who themselves don't know, and you've seen open frustration on the part of the Europeans, the Europeans who've said, wait a minute, you told us we could start going back into business with Iran, and now you're saying maybe we can, and within the Middle East, because if you take Trump rhetoric at face value, and it's always kind of hard to do that, theoretically, he's building a case for war. I mean, theoretically, he's saying Iran isn't abiding by the deal. They are building weapons and giving them to allies across the region, which they are, to the Houthi who are fighting the Saudi Arabians in Yemen, to groups in Iraq, to groups in Lebanon. So at least theoretically, he's saying, I don't like this Iran deal. I don't think they're complying with it. Oh, and by the way, they're doing these other bad things. So we may have to do something about Iran. Right. And if you listen to his speech where he put out the national security strategy, which is, you know, the big document laying out his kind of vision for foreign policy, national security, kind of more broadly, um, that Congress requires that presidents put out fairly regularly. Iran was explicitly kind of named as this big threat. It was elevated essentially to the same level as North Korea, which is interesting given that North Korea actually has nuclear weapons and the missiles to theoretically deliver them to the United States. Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. That was the entire point of the Iran deal. But he's treating Iran literally in the security strategy. So this isn't just like a tweet or like a, you know, an offhanded comment of him shooting from the hip. This is literally he's laying out this kind of strategic doctrine and elevating Iran to this massive threat, which is really concerning when you realize that if the Iran deal ends, they could very well decide to, okay, well, we're going to get nuclear weapons then. So it, it's, you know, this isn't an issue that we can just kind of ignore and it'll go away. Like there are serious consequences no matter which action you take or if you take no action. It's still there. It's still a problem. It's also important to emphasize that this appears to be a decision made out of peak. Uh, if you look at all of the internal analyses and exposés on the decision to decertify the Iran deal, it was Trump against all of his advisors. They were pretty much all of the top advisors unanimous in saying you shouldn't do this. It's not in our interests. The deal might be bad, but we can't undermine it in this way. And the president was like, I hate having to say that it's working because of that clip that we played earlier where he said over and over again, I hate the Iran deal. It's terrible. And that way of making decisions, doing something because the president doesn't like it, is profoundly abnormal and sends a profoundly worrying signal to Iran and other countries the U.S. has an agreement with. How can you trust past agreements? And I think the other thing it does that's kind of alarming is we joke a lot on the podcast about Rex Tillerson. I mean, I have dubbed him and do stand by the description of him as Mr. Charisma, but— God forbid we get through a single podcast without— Bingo! Mm -hmm. Year-end content, we really have to double down on Mr. Charisma references. But he, uh, there's one area where he has been in the right, which is the Iran deal, right? Like, he's been one of the voices saying to Trump, this deal works, certify it. This deal works, stay in it. Trump hates that. And when you hear the stories and read the stories about why Trump wants to fire him, part of it is Trump was tired of Rex Tillerson saying— stay in the deal. So, you know, Zach, to your point, it isn't just making policy out of anger, although I agree with you. It's potentially undercutting and then firing really important members of your own cabinet because you don't like what they're telling you, even though what they're telling you is probably objectively true. I think it's important that we not like, I mean, Trump is unique, right? And and he does things in a, a vastly different and more, you know, kind of audacious and braggadocious way. But to be fair, he's not the first politician who said a lot of shit on the campaign trail that he ultimately didn't 
totally follow through on when he got into the White House. This actually is important um, because there's a lot of political science research about whether presidents tend to follow through on their campaign promises. And for the most part, they do. Um, this is something that is not well known or well understood by the general public, but is a, a clear finding in the research because they tend right. to promise things and they tend to act on them. So in this case, this is a surprise. The way that Trump has been behaving in a sort of erratic, oftentimes betraying his own campaign rhetoric. You can see this on domestic policy too. But this is this is another thing that's profoundly abnormal. It's, it's worth not not comparing it too blithely to presidents in the past. Right. I, I, I agree. Um, but my point that I was actually getting at is, you know, I was going to point to the Jerusalem decision, right? Like every president has said, you know, we're going to um, move the embassy, right? It's it's U.S. law that we're going to move our embassy to Jerusalem. No president has actually followed through, right? As soon as they get in the White House, they just kind of stall it, stall it, stall it. Now, Trump may still be doing that and stalling it, right? But he at least has ordered the State Department to start the process of figuring out where to build, construct a new embassy in Jerusalem and move it from Tel Aviv. That's at least farther than any other president has gone in terms of following through on that campaign promise. So, you know, I, I think the point is that there are kind of, especially in foreign policy, there are these kind of big, we're going to, you know, Obama, we're going to, you know, end the war in, in Iraq, we're going to, you know, whatever, pull out of Afghanistan, things like that. And then, you know, you end up with surges, you end up with this kind of longer running, you know, war in Iraq. So I, I just think it's important to not to make it seem like Trump is the only person who's ever not followed through on a single foreign policy promise. So the other thing that I think is very important to note about both Iran and also North Korea, which we're going to talk about in a second, is these are not countries where Trump is wrong to see a threat. Iran is not acting as a rash. It's acting perhaps rationally, but it's not acting in a way the world order wants. It is providing weapons to rebels. It is arming militias and terror groups across the Middle East. But before we dive into North Korea, let's take a quick break. A benefit of having toddlers and a dog is that I have a lot of time to walk, which means a lot of time to read, which means a lot of time to read magazines. Magazines are fun. They're different from newspapers. They have photos. They have graphics. They have imagery you don't really tend to see otherwise. And there's an endless variety of things you might want to read. You might want to read recipes. You might want to read political news. Or you might just like gadgets. And here's the thing. You can now get magazines that deliver all of that in one place. And that's with Texture. The Texture app gives you unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines. It has leading titles like Time, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired, Right now, you can try Texture for free. Here's how you do it. To start your Texture free trial, go to texture.com backslash worldly. If you choose to continue, all of our listeners can get Texture for just $9.99 a month, which is over 30% off their listed price. There are also gift options available for the holiday season in case you want to give these magazines and the ability to read them anytime, anywhere to those you love. So go to texture.com backslash worldly to get a free trial. Again, texture.com backslash worldly. Life is supposed to be a journey of discovery, where you ask the big questions about the big meaningful stuff. Love, purpose, experience. Why am I here? What you don't want to ask is, where are my keys? Where's my wallet? Where's my phone? But you often find yourself asking that because you're frantically looking for them and then unable to find them. But there's a better way. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device. Now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With Tracker Pixel, you'll never worry about losing your things again. That's because Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. You can put it on whatever you tend to lose, your keys, your wallets, your purse, 
it is very literally small enough to fit anywhere. So when you misplace an item that has a tracker pixel attached, you go to the tracker app on your smartphone, press a button, and the pixel will start making a 90 decibel alert that'll help you find it in seconds. It even has powerful LED lights that shine so you can find it in the dark. Lose your phone? Press the button on your tracker pixel and your phone rings even if it's on silent. You can even locate your item if it's miles away because every tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. It's like Waze for finding your things. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. So here's how you get it. Go to thetracker.com slash worldly to get 20% off any order. And that's spelled T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R dot com, the tracker. So again, to get 20% off, it's thetracker.com slash worldly, thetracker.com slash worldly. We're going to talk North Korea right now, in part because when Trump says North Korea is a threat, he's true, and he's accurate about that. And this is the kind of language Trump tends to use. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. So everyone makes the obvious Game of Thrones reference when he talks about fire and fury. But it is, I think, worth noting He is not wrong to say North Korea is a gigantic, to our allies, existential threat, potentially, potentially capable of firing a nuclear weapon that would hit the United States. So that's part of the Trump presidency, I think, isn't often as understood as it should be. These threats are real. And then the question is, is he making them more dangerous? But it's not that the threats weren't there in the first place. If he wants to reference Game of Thrones, he should get the Targaryen name right. It's fire and blood, not fire and fury. Sorry. Continue, Jen. Nerd. (laughs) I can't even give you shit. I read all the books. Um, Trump has also said, you know, and again, I agree correctly that he essentially was stuck with this problem, right? Like he came into office with this problem of North Korea getting, you know, much more sophisticated with its nuclear weapons technology, with its ballistic missile technology. And he said over and over, like, this should have been dealt with before. They didn't. And this was essentially dumped on me. And he's right. The Bush administration tried to, you know, deal with North Korea. Any kind of agreements eventually fell through. The Obama administration similarly tried to work and figure out ways to to stop or slow down or, you know, reverse North Korea's kind of rapid advancement and again failed. And so Trump is right to say, like, look, you know, I essentially got this at the very tail end of a really shitty situation. And, you know, he doesn't have the best policy options, right? There are policy options that are very different that he can choose from. But he's right to say that, like, it's not like this is a crisis of his own making. It's not like he's the one that started this. Now, how he's handling it, which policy options he actually does choose, those are on him. Right. The question is what you mean by this when you say it's not like he started this. It is true that the current cycle of provocations and counter-provocations on both sides started with North Korea's ICBM test earlier this year. Trump didn't campaign on fixing the North Korea issue. It was a sideshow in the 2016 campaign at best. Uh, but he was the issue was dumped on him when North Korea tested a missile that in theory could hit large swaths of the United States for the first time. That's a really huge technical development. So then it, it really became priority number one. Then the question becomes, how did Trump handle this, that development? And my sense is is when we're talking about that, this, it's very poor, right? The president made a series of threats like the one we just heard that substantially escalated the situation and have freaked out the North Koreans 
alienated allies and, and brought us, frankly, a few miscalculations away from war in a way that we haven't been in a long time. And I don't know if he wants that. I, I genuinely can't tell. But I genuinely believe that it's really scary. I, you know, Zach, I, I hear you. I would disagree slightly insofar as Trump's talk has gotten through the UN Security Council tougher sanction on North Korea that had ever been put onto it before. And you could say that that's, you can find other reasons for it, but I do think the tough talk has a part of it. Also, Trump insults Kim Jong-un. I think we can all say that calling him little rocket man, going to the UN General Assembly and promising to basically eradicate a country are not things presidents often do for good reason. But I don't want to put this on Trump. Like, I genuinely, genuinely don't. I've been researching a long piece on what war with North Korea would actually look like. And what's been striking to me about the early interviews for it is nearly everyone I've spoken to, including people who served in the Obama White House, all think it's coming and all think it's inevitable and all, they don't use this word, but they think to a degree it's justified. And they don't put this on Trump. They put this on, this is North Korea, and this has to be dealt with, whether it's now under Trump, whether it's four years from now when they're more powerful, but they don't put this on Trump. So that's interesting. Um, what, I'd actually like to know a little bit more about that. When they say war with North Korea, are we are we talking, like, what does that mean? Are we talking like limited strikes on their nuclear facilities? Are we talking a full-scale invasion? Are we talking like war kind of more generally? Um, is it, you know, North Korea firing on Seoul? Like what what are they saying is inevitable that we need to like act to stop their nuclear program with limited strikes? Or are they saying we need to like have full, you know, decapitation of the regime? So it depends a little bit on who starts the war. I mean, if North Korea attacks first, it's one set of options. If we attack first, it's, it's a different one. One thing that's been interesting, and I'll just talk about this briefly because it's worth a, a longer conversation down the road. For decades, U.S. war games about North Korea were that if they went nuclear, it would be at the very end of the conflict. It would be the Kim regime thinks it's going to fall, so they fire off a couple of nukes. What's very scary is that in current war games, and again, we'll talk about this later, probably next year, is that war games now presume North Korea might go nuclear at the beginning of a conflict. Not at Seoul, but that they would nuke a port city someplace to try to make it harder to bring in supplies or troops. But that's a massive change for the way the Pentagon sees this, as North Korea going nuclear early, even if it's not destroy South Korea, destroy Japan, destroy the United States. Right. No, that's that's their plan. But I, I couldn't disagree with the way that you're framing the situation more. Uh, based on my own conversations with experts on North Korea, they overwhelmingly believe that the Kim regime is rational, that they know that that kind of action is a worst case, last ditch scenario, because if they nuke, the odds are that the U.S. retaliates overwhelmingly. And the U.S. and South Korea combined can crush North Korea. It would be bloody. It would be horrible. But they would win, almost certainly win that war. And the North Koreans know it. So the idea that North Korea is inevitably going to go to war with the United States when deterrence has held conventional and nuclear since the Korean War and even at times when North Korea has killed civilians over South Korea and service members that they would necessarily escalate when there's an even more powerful reason for both sides not to, that – it doesn't jive with the expert consensus that I'm hearing. And and to me, it seems much more of the blame falls on a president who's threatening preemptive war, a war that North Korea knows would destroy it. And as a result, they have to be really concerned about any American action being the prelude to war. That raises the stakes much more in a way that the North wasn't doing in the past. They don't want war. I don't agree with that at all. I mean, North Korea has talked about preemptively destroying the United States for decades. But they just say as stuff. It has with they Japan. say stuff all the time. Right. But you can't 
you, you can't in one voice, in one moment, say they don't say it and then, and then say they do. They, they do say it and they have for a long time. Not, not and say a part it, of it's what their, they believe. It, and what they believe is different than the rhetoric they use for public legitimation. Like what appears in KCNA, the state broadcaster, doesn't reflect necessarily the actual beliefs of Kim Jong-un and his inner circle and the evidence that we have. Right, but but no one, no one knows what Kim Jong-un and his inner circle believe and experts have been wrong about it for decades. It's also true that one part of the expert consensus, such as it is in North Korea, is that they are all about regime survival. Left out of that is the second part of North Koreans, to the degree they have a, a coherent philosophy, which is reunification of the peninsula. They legitimately, insofar as you can trust their propaganda, their textbooks, believe they will eventually invade the South and they will eventually conquer the South. So this isn't just that there's a status quo that you can contain, it's that they actively believe they can eventually conquer the South. North Korea is something, obviously, we will come back to a lot in part, though, because it ties into the next country that we'll talk about, which is China. This is a place, again, where you had, Zach, this is something you've written about, but you, you had candidate Trump say one thing, President Trump act very differently. And again, this is the kind of things you would once hear from Donald Trump as we are now talking about China. We can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. So, Zach, when we're talking about rhetoric, and I'm not making light of this, but He's talking about raping the United States. It's just so icky, especially for a president who's been credibly accused of sexual assault. Um, but getting past that, which is hard for me to do, but but I will do it. Uh, it's amazing that since then, he has referred to his great chemistry with Chinese President Xi. He has said that a meeting, a 10-minute meeting with uh, the Chinese president changed his mind on China's leverage over North Korea and its whole situation. Trump has done nothing meaningfully to crack down on what he sees as or used to cast as unfair Chinese trade practices. It's just it's a total 180 from that kind of language. Yeah. And I think it's it's really interesting to see, too. I mean, you know, he during the campaign over and over said that, you know, China can handle this. China can handle North Korea. Right. Like they have the power it's completely within their ability to stop North Korea and to get North Korea to change its behavior. Point blank. He fully believed that. And then, like you said, Zach, after 10 minutes of talking with the Chinese president, he was like, turns out it's not it's not so easy. I'm not really sure they, they can do it. Um, and, you know, kind of ever since then, he's been really a lot softer. Um, he's tweeted several times like, China tried. You know, you guys did a good, good job, but it's not working. Appreciate the try. You know, he has pushed um, and, you know, Obama tried to do this as well. And Trump has had much more success to his credit at getting China to crack down, uh, especially on like uh, more illegitimate businesses, cross-border trade, things like that. Um, and in some of the areas where they can kind of make a difference, they have. They haven't gone as far as as some experts would like, obviously not as far as Trump would like. Um, and Yet we still really haven't seen a lot of movement on the North Korean side in terms of changing their behavior. But Trump, it seems his entire kind of view of China was impacted by this one interpersonal reaction, interaction. And I think that's really important to understand when we're thinking about Trump's foreign policy and how he conducts himself on the world stage. I think it's a critical point that personal relationships seem to be at the core of what drives kind of his perceptions, his, you know, way of thinking about foreign policy issues in a way, I mean, that's not abnormal, right? But in a, in a degree, I don't think we've seen kind of as strongly and as dramatically. 
And you've also seen world leaders understand quickly that flattery really works. Right. So if you're running Saudi Arabia and Trump comes to visit, so you project his face onto a massive hotel, so you have a 60-story high image of Donald Trump. And if you are President uh, Xi Jinping of China, when President Trump comes to visit, you close the Forbidden City. So he has his private tour, he and Melania of the Forbidden City. And that itself is interesting. You know, presidents for a long time have been kind of black boxes to the outside world where spies from every country on earth have tried to figure out how does a president think? How do they make decisions? And Trump has made it pretty obvious. And foreign leaders are not dumb. So they know this is true of Egypt. This is true of China. This this is true of Saudi Arabia. Flatter him and you kind of get what you want. Yeah. What's interesting is that it's obvious, to, so obvious to all types of world leaders that various different kinds have tried. So when he went to Japan, uh, Shinzo Abe got custom uh, – I think it was like Make America Japanese Alliance Great Again or something like that. It was some kind of alliance thing. That's not an exact one. Really rolls off the tongue with that phrase. It was really, it was awkward. The English of it was awkward. They were customized hats with gold embroidered thread that said that, just to be clear. They were ridiculously hilarious. Right. I mean, the gold embroidery, very Trump. But it it doesn't capture his attention, the president's, that is, the way that closing the Forbidden City or the giant Trump face on the wall of a Saudi hotel like that that does there's this kind of pomp and circumstance that dictators are really good at that the president yeah. seems to be attracted to well yeah i mean i think i think that's a good point you know the the prime minister of japan is probably not quite as used to massive authoritarian spectacle in the same way that chinese president xi jinping is um but i mean you know you did see when when trump went to france you know emmanuel macron did have Again, knowing Trump, this massive military parade. I mean, Trump was like, I got to get one of these, right? Like he was so excited. And you remember back during the inauguration, Trump had wanted like tanks rolling down the street and everyone was like, yeah, you can't actually have that. But he loves that kind of spectacle. So it's disturbing in a sense that, you know, you would think that right anyone is going to be somewhat susceptible to flattery. But you have these kind of broader core principles that you stick to ostensibly, ideally, right? That like – you're not going to be swayed. You might have a more favorable view of, of that leader, but you still understand the core interests of the United States versus Trump, who seems to just kind of be really easily swayed just from that personal flattery to a degree that's really uncomfortable. So I want to circle back, Jen, to a point from the beginning. You were describing, and, and yesterday when we were planning for this episode, we were trying to think of uh, the phrase that would sound the least inappropriate, but of Trump kind of you know speaking loudly and, and carrying kind of a small stick. There's also, in the case of China, he speaks softly and carries absolutely no stick. And you saw this on his trip to Beijing earlier in the year where he did not talk about human rights at all. He did not talk about what China's doing in the East China Sea or the South China Sea at all, even though those can both lead to war. Every president prior to him who's gone to China has mandated there be a press conference open to both the Chinese and Western press where questions are often asked uncomfortably to the Chinese leaders who never have to take questions. Trump did not have that kind of press conference. So it isn't, I think, simply a fact that they figured out how to play him. It's that he's willing to give, especially in the case of China, nearly everything they want. They don't want to hear about human rights. He doesn't talk about human rights. They don't want to hear about the East China Sea. He doesn't talk about the East China Sea. They don't want questions in the press. He doesn't allow questions from the press. So, you know, Jen, to your point from the beginning, there's the occasional speak loudly part, and then there's the equally scary not say anything part. And on the flip side, the State Department, in as much as it does have something to say representing Trump— Um, has been also very clear saying, you know, we are explicitly saying we are not going to interfere in your domestic kind of political affairs. We are not going to force our way of life on you. 
we are not going to, you know, force democracy, right? This isn't like the neocon kind of spreading democracy mission here. Trump has said these kind of things publicly and used some of the exact language that the Chinese government has used itself in kind of pushing against the United States. And there were all these experts on China who were just floored to hear Trump and the State Department use the exact same phrasing that the Chinese government, making China so happy that the Chinese government uses saying, yeah, you know, don't impose your way on us. Like, let us have our our own way of life. We'll deal with each other, you know, for trade relations, international relations, but stay out of our business. And we've completely just seeded the field on that. So we've spent much of this episode, much of the year talking about very scary things, but there are things happening in the world that are not always appreciated and that thankfully are better than they are worse and less scary than they may seem. So we're going to end with a lightning round. We're going to try to end with something that isn't horribly dark, terrifying, and depressing, like nuclear war with North Korea. So Zach, as you are sitting in the socialist paradise of Canada, hit it. Well, there's less of a risk of nuclear war up here, but... Uh, More seriously, uh, the day-to-day headlines obscure the fundamental realities of our era, which is that it is the best time to be alive in human history, even weirdly enough with Donald Trump as president. Around the world, life expectancy is rising, infant mortality is falling, incidents of disease and disease transmission are falling, there are fewer people in absolute poverty as a percentage of the world than ever before. These are all trends that have continued throughout 2017, they've yet to be disrupted. And while they still might, a fundamental change to the international system could screw them up. But these things are still happening. And overall, the world is still getting a lot better. And we should be thankful for that. All right. So mine is, it's a really positive thing and from a really horrifying start. Um, So I think for me, the the kind of, I guess, if you want to call it the Harvey Weinstein effect, right? The taking down and massive dramatic fall of very powerful men who have, in some cases, allegedly raped, sexually assaulted, and in some lesser cases, sexually harassed, sometimes egregiously. Um, women who are subordinate to them have prevented them from, you know, moving up in their field, even from continuing in their field. And I think tying it back to to the Trump conversation earlier, despite the fact that Trump and the U.S. isn't championing human rights, kind of women's rights in the way that previous administrations have, I think societally we've seen it not just here in the U.S., but there are conversations now happening in China about sexual harassment. There are conversations happening in Europe and France. And I think that's a positive development that society itself is actually kind of waking up to this, even though government isn't maybe driving it. I think that's a really positive development that can only continue to get better. So I'm going to go big and I'm going to go very small. The big one is the world takes climate change seriously. And you are seeing that in the case of China. You're seeing that in the case of the Paris Accords. The U.S. may not be, but the rest of the world is. And you have renewable energy being pushed out in a way that's never been seen before. The world is taking it seriously. And that's overdue and really important. The small one is... We get emails and I get emails, and they mean a lot to me, from listeners who care deeply about things like the Rohingya, who care deeply about people who are suffering from famine, who want to know how to help. And there are people out there the world over. There are people, refugee workers, who are putting themselves in harm's way to try to help others. There are journalists, for all talk of fake news, who are risking their lives, in some cases dying, to bring stories from Syria, from Iraq. And we should be thankful for them, for the aid workers who are there and for the journalists who are there who are putting themselves in danger to help others. I also want to mention two other very brief personal things that we should be thankful for, or at least Jen and I are happy about. One is our dear friend, Zach, 
getting engaged. The other is our dear friend Alex Ward, friend of show, getting married. And the last is to everyone out there, all of you who are listening, thank you so much for helping us get this podcast off the ground. Thank you for giving us suggestions about things we should talk about more, about how to get better. You've helped us make this bigger than we thought it could be. We hope next year you will rate, subscribe, tell other friends and family. This could not exist without all of you. We want to just thank all of you for helping us make this reality. Within Vox, we want to thank the people who normally help. Our brilliant engineer, Peter Leonard. Our usual producer, uh, Jillian Weinberger, who is not here. Our producer today, Bird Pinkerton. Our social media manager, Julie Bogan. And a special shout out to the CBC station at Kitchener-Waterloo for letting me use their studios while I'm out here visiting Katie's family. And the people at Big Vox who helped this launch, Ezra Klein, Allison Rocky, and Ashat Kerwa. And again, to all of you who listen, thanks for listening this year. We'll be with you all in 2018.